It is a great blessing to be here with you this morning. It's our prayer, as always, that you have come here today with open hearts and open minds, ready to learn from the Word of God. And certainly as we open up the the Bible together this morning and we study more about Jesus and seek to get to know Jesus a little bit better today, that hopefully we can walk away this morning uh, with some things that maybe we have learned or some things that we can take home and meditate upon and, and ponder further on and appreciate the great sacrifice and the great gift that has been given to each and every one of us. Now, as we have embarked on this series of getting to know Jesus, we've had three parts of this series so far that we've covered. In part one, we talked about how that Jesus was born to be Savior and King, how that He was the fulfillment of God's promises. He was God made flesh, as John chapter 1, 1 through 3 talks about, that He was God. And then verse 14 tells us that he, was, he became flesh, that word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we know that Jesus was God made flesh, sent here by God to be Savior and King. We know that Jesus, even as a baby, was so revered and so feared that Herod had all the children in Bethlehem and all the coasts around Bethlehem that were two years old and younger killed in an effort to try to get rid of this would-be king. We talked about in part number two how that Jesus grew up and proved that He was the Son of God. That even as a child at 12 years old, He was there in the temple with the teachers of the law and He was impressing them and astonishing them with the answers and the understanding that He had about God's law. And when His parents asked Him, where have you been? What have you been doing? Jesus' response was, don't you know that I need to be about my Father's business? And even at 12 years old, he knew what his mission was. We talked about how that he grew up, and at the age of 30, he was baptized in the Jordan River by his cousin John. And that that voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus was then taken into the desert, or into the wilderness, which was desert, by Satan after he had fasted for 40 days. And Satan tempted him. And yet Jesus passed all of those tests and proved that he could live without sin and that he could fulfill that mission of his to become our sacrifice and our Savior. And in part number three, we talked about his ministry of over those three years that he was here on earth, doing that work, performing those miracles, all the many things, the physical healings, the spiritual forgiveness of sin that he provided to people, the manipulation of winds and rains and all the things, all that power that Jesus established to prove that he was from God. And then all those things that he taught. He taught about that new kingdom that was coming. About that new law that he was establishing. The new standard that people were supposed to live by. And the new way, the new method, the new plan of salvation that we sang about this morning. That would enable you and I and every person that desires it to be saved. And so in this part number four, we're going to talk about as Jesus has fulfilled his ministry and his teaching. The next part of that story is that Jesus gave his life to save us. In Luke chapter 19, verse 47 and verse 48, the scripture says, And he taught daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the chief of the people sought to destroy him, and could not find what they might do, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. Jesus taught his new law. He taught about that kingdom. He taught about the new standard. He taught about the way of coming to God and the way of salvation. He taught about all those things. And those Jewish elites, those leaders, the chief priests, all those that were above the people, they saw Jesus as a threat. Because you see, Jesus didn't fulfill their fantasies of what they thought the Old Testament should have been talking about in the coming king. You see, they wanted someone to come and to lead Israel back against Rome. For Israel to take back its power and not be under Rome's thumb anymore. And that certainly wasn't Jesus. It wasn't Jesus' purpose. 
They also feared the authority. They feared the influence. They feared the power that Jesus had displayed. And so they decided that it was in their best interest to get rid of Jesus. Just as Herod had thought when Jesus was a baby. And so they began to seek for ways to get rid of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. In Mark chapter 8, verse 31 and 32, I want us to recognize, though, that Jesus was prepared to die. It says, And He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And He spake that saying openly. And Peter took Him and began to rebuke Him. So what I want us to recognize, we talk sometimes about the, the death of Jesus and how that He was betrayed and He was taken and He was put to death. And all of that is true. But we also need to recognize that Jesus did all those things and allowed all of those things to happen willingly. And in his life and in his ministry, he taught his disciples there is coming a day when I will be put to death. I will be killed. But three days later, I'm coming back. And so I just want us to recognize this morning that no, nobody that we're going to talk about today, not Pilate, not the Jews, not the Roman soldiers, nobody really had the power to put Jesus to death. Jesus was the Son of God. Jesus could have stopped it at any point that he wanted, but Jesus taught that these things must come to pass. And he was going to let it happen. He says this in John chapter 10 and verse 17, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. And so I want us to remember as we seek to get to know Jesus a little bit better, we think about what He has been sent here to do. He is the fulfillment of God's promise. He is that part of God that was made flesh. He was here to become Savior, to become King of that new kingdom that would allow all the people of the world across the world to be saved and to spend eternity in heaven with God. As Jesus is seeking to fulfill that mission, He knows that the integral part of that is His death. And so He says, no one's going to take it from me. I'm going to lay it down of myself. Willingly. We see, though, the, the events that transpire in order to lead up to this involves one of Je uh, Jesus' closest companions, a man named Judas, who had served as a disciple of his for that three-year ministry as Jesus performed those miracles and taught about the kingdom and taught about that new law. Judas was there all the while. And yet it would be Judas that would start, or rather that would give the chief priests and the scribes and those that wanted Jesus dead, he would give them the ability to take Jesus. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 14 says, Then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot went unto the chief priests and said unto them, What will you give me and I will, deliver, I will deliver him unto you? And they covenanted with him for thirty pieces of silver. And from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. Now John tells us from a later perspective as he's looking back and he's writing the book of John, he tells us that Judas was a thief the entire time that he served to Jesus. In fact, Judas carried the bag of money for the group during that three-year ministry. And John tells us that from time to time Judas would steal out of that bag. So what we see is that Judas had a problem. He had a problem with greed. He had a problem with the love of money. And so here I think he sees an opportunity. He knows the chief priests are seeking for a way to put Jesus to death. He's also seen the great power that Jesus has. And I'm going to do a little bit of, of guessing here and this is just my opinion. But I think Judas looked at this and said I can make some quick cash here and betray him to them and Jesus isn't going to die. I've seen what Jesus can do. Jesus can get out of anything. But I can make some money off of this deal. 
And so he goes to the chief priests and those that wanted Jesus dead. And he says, what will you give me if I betray him? And they said, 30 pieces of silver. And he says, done. Shook on it. And so Judas is now looking for an opportunity to betray his master. In John chapter 13, we see Jesus here at the, what we would call the Last Supper. And Jesus has gathered his disciples together. Jesus knows that it is nearing his time of death. It is, in fact, the night or the evening before Jesus would be betrayed and arrested. And previous to this, a few days before, we see Jesus has come into Jerusalem for the last time. And he rides on that donkey and the people put the palm uh, branches in front of him. And they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. And they're, they're cheering. The people, the crowds are with him. They're worshiping him. As he enters Jerusalem. And now here a few days later Jesus knows though that the time of his departure is nearing. And so he calls his disciples together what we would call the upper room at this last supper. And Jesus does several things here. This is the setting where Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper that we just partook of. This is also the setting where Jesus performs the greatest act of service I guess while he was alive here. And the greatest example of service. And he did this on purpose. And that was... That he got down on his hands and his knees and he washed his disciples' feet. It says, He riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Now, I want us to recognize before we read that next verse. Here's Jesus who knows that his death is is impending. He knows how it's going to take place. He knows that Judas is there and is about to betray him. In fact, he's about to tell them that. And yet the Son of God, Jesus, the greatest servant that there's ever been, gets down and he washes every disciple's feet, including Judas, who was about to betray him. And I just want us to recognize how contrary that is to human nature. How contrary that is to what any, what we would call regular human being would ever do. But Jesus was no regular human being. Jesus was the Son of God, the perfect Lamb of God sent to be Savior and King. And He had such love and such compassion and such a heart of service that He provided even that example for us to get down and to serve even the greatest of our betrayers, the greatest of our enemies, that we still ought to have that heart of service for others. And Jesus goes on in the following verses after he washes their feet and he teaches them about why he did that. He tells them, I did this as an example for you so that you would be able to go then and do that for each other and to know that that is what is required. And then immediately following that, we see that Jesus' spirit is troubled. It says, when Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. Then the disciples looked on one another, doubting of whom he spake. And so Jesus says, one of you, one of the twelve here, are going to betray me. And they start looking around and going, what? Who could this be? And Peter nudges John. John is there beside Jesus and and, and Peter kind of gets his attention. It's like, hey, you ask him, you know. And so John is there and John, of course, is is one of Jesus' closest companions. And so John says, who is it, Lord? Jesus answered, He it is to whom I shall give a sop. A sop is a morsel, probably a morsel of bread. He says, He it is to whom I give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the sop, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, That thou doest, do quickly. Now I want us to just think about a couple of things here. Judas is there. Judas knows what's in his heart. 
Judas has already made an agreement to betray Jesus. He's just been looking for an opportunity. And now Judas has just had his feet washed by Jesus, by the Son of God. And now Jesus has revealed that he knows who is going to betray him. And he looks Judas squarely in the eye as he hands him that morsel of bread. And he says to he it is, the one who's going to betray me is the one I'm going to hand this to. And he hands it to Judas. And I just imagine them locking eyes. And Jesus looks into Judas's eyes and he says, whatever you're going to do, do it quickly. Do it now. And Judas, fully knowing that Jesus knew he was going to betray him, still chose to go and get his 30 pieces of silver and betray the Son of God. Now some people look at this and they say, well, Satan entered into him. And they'll say, maybe this was Satan that forcibly took control of Judas and then forced to Judas. I don't believe that. I don't believe Satan had the power even at this time. Even at the height of Satan's power, I don't believe that he had the power to forcibly take over without there first being some letting Satan in, some sin problem, some temptation, some reason that a person would let Satan come in. And we've already established that Judas did have that. It was greed. It was a love of money. And he let Satan in. And fully knowing that Jesus knew, he still chose to go and betray him. After Judas left, Jesus and the other eleven, they went to what we would call the Garden of Gethsemane. The Garden of Gethsemane was a, was a garden at the base of the Mount of Olives. And in this garden, Jesus frequently had gone to pray. And he goes here this night, knowing what is about to come, and he leaves his disciples behind and he goes off by himself and he begins to pray to God. And three times he prays this prayer to God. It says, He was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but thine be done. I want us to remember this morning that even though Jesus was God made flesh, that he was 100% God, he was also 100% human and man. And everything that he was about to face was going to take a very real human toll on him. And he knew that. And he experienced the same anxiety, the same stress, and the same fear that you and I would about what's about to come. And so he prays over and over to God, if there's any other way that this can be accomplished, please let it be another way. But notice he keeps the framework that your will be done no matter what. And we know, of course, God's will was that this would take place. In Luke 22, verse 44, it says, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Luke says that Jesus was in agony. This was not a physical agony yet. That agony was to come. This was an emotional and mental agony over what was about to take place. That bottom part of that verse there where it says his sweat became as great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Many people have, have disagreed about what this is saying. Some will say this simply means he was sweating profusely and it's just an illustration to show how hard he was sweating. But others will say no, his sweat really did become as drops of blood and there actually is a medical condition hematidrosis where this does take place. And when a person is under extreme physical or emotional stress the capillaries that feed their sweat glands can burst. 
and blood can mingle with sweat as it comes out. And I believe that this is the case of what happened here with Jesus. I believe Luke, as a physician who wrote this book, had that perspective as he wrote it and is telling us the kind of agony that Jesus was truly in. And yet the physical toll had not even begun. In Matthew 26 and verse 47, it says, And while he yet spake, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves, from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, the same as he, hold him fast. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. And so here Jesus is in the garden and he is in agony. He is in emotional and mental pain and stress, knowing what is about to happen. And then he sees Judas, his friend for three years, who is coming toward him with Roman soldiers behind him and with the Jewish leaders trailing them. And he tells them, the one that I kiss, that's the one that you want. And then he walks up to this man that he had served for three years and he says, Hail, Master. And he kisses him. The ultimate sign of betrayal, you see, a kiss was something that friends do. That people who really have a relationship that care about one another, it is a sign of friendship and a sign of love. And with that sign of friendship and love, Judas has betrayed Jesus. And then look at what it says in verse 55. As they have arrested Jesus, you remember Peter comes to his defense and Peter draws his sword and he cuts the, the, the ear of the high priest's servants. And he cuts, cuts his ear off. And Jesus stops him and he says, put your, put your sword back. This is not what it's about. And then they arrest him and they take him. And I want you to notice what these verses says. It says, in that same hour said Jesus to the multitudes, are ye come out as against a thief with swords and staves for to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple and ye laid no hold on me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. Jesus is looking into the eyes of not only those chief priests and the rulers and the Roman soldiers, but he's looking at the, the multitude that is now gathered to witness what is happening. And he's looking at people that he knows. He's looking people in the eye that he has taught, that he has conversed with. And he says, you came out with swords like I'm a thief to take me? He says, I... Every day I was there sitting with you, talking with you, teaching you. And you didn't take me then. What are you doing now? And then all 11 remaining of the disciples, Judas has already betrayed him. But it's not just Judas. All of the other 11 forsook him and fled. And Jesus now finds himself utterly and completely alone. With no friends no one sticking with him or beside him. Betrayed by one of his closest companions. Betrayed by now the multitudes and the crowds who are treating him like a criminal when he doesn't deserve it. And they that laid hold on Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him afar off unto the high priest's palace and went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now the chief priests and the elders and all the council sought false witness against Jesus to put him to death. So they take Jesus first to Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the Jewish high priest at that time. One of the other writers also tells us they took him to Annas. Annas was the former high priest. So he sees both the former and the current high priest of the Jewish people as if really Caiaphas, I think, really wanted Annas' approval for what was taking place. And they got it. 
And that was to seek to put Jesus to death. Peter begins to follow afar off. Peter is the one disciple that sort of, kind of, tried to stay with Jesus, except we know the end of that story, that Peter would be uh, confronted three different times about being one of Jesus' disciples. And once again, Peter, like all the other disciples, would forsake Jesus and betray him and say, I'm not with him. And so Jesus is alone. He has taken to Caiaphas, the high priest. This is a gathering of the Sanhedrin council. And the first trial that Jesus goes through is this Jewish trial. And they're looking for false witnesses because they know they really don't have anything on Jesus. They need excuses. They need reasons to try to put him to death. And there are some people that come forth and one guy comes forth and he says, well, I heard Jesus say that he's going to destroy this temple and then in three days build it back up. Well, Jesus did say that. But Jesus wasn't talking about the temple. He was talking about his body, himself. That he would die and three days later he would be raised up. And then the, the high priest looks at Jesus and he's demanding an answer and Jesus is just silent. He's just not responding and not answering. It says, Jesus held his peace. And then the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. And finally Jesus gives an answer. It says, Jesus saith unto him, thou hast said. That's Jesus affirming it. He says, what you have said is right. That's what that means. Thou hast said. Nevertheless, I say unto you, hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He hath spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now ye have heard his blasphemy. What think ye? And they answered and said, He is guilty of death. And so the high priest press, presses Jesus over and over to answer, and finally Jesus says, Yes, you're right. I am the Christ, the Son of God. And he says, and it won't be long and you'll see me sitting on the right hand of power. You'll see me coming in the clouds. And that was enough for the high priest. And he looks at the, the council around him, all those that had gathered, and they all agree that's enough. We don't need any other witnesses. We've heard blasphemy out of his own mouth. He, of course, is not really the Messiah, not really the Savior, not really the coming King. So because he has claimed he is, that's blasphemy and that is worthy of death. In their minds... That was the justification for putting him to death. Matthew 26, 67 says, Then they did spit in his face and buffeted him, and others smote him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy unto us, thou Christ, who is he that smote thee? So now the emotional agony and turmoil is turning into physical agony and turmoil as well. Now he is being spit upon. He is being hit. He is being hit by those with the palms of their hands, either behind his head where he can't see them, or they have blindfolded him. But people are smacking him and hitting him and saying, if you're really the Christ, tell us who hit you. Tell me my name. Tell me who I am. And they're mocking him, and they're making fun of him. And he takes it. Doesn't say anything back. Doesn't threaten them. Doesn't say, I'm the son of God, you just wait. None of that. He just takes it. Matthew 27, 1 and 2 says, When the morning was come, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. So after the Jews had had their mock trial and they had decided that Jesus was worthy of death, they then took him to the Roman governor at that time, the prefect of Judea, which was Pontius Pilate. They needed Pilate's approval to put him to death. 
And so they brought him before this Roman governor. Now Pilate goes to begin to examine him, and then he finds out that Jesus is actually from Galilee. And he knows that Herod, which is called sometimes King Herod in the Bible, but really he was a tetrarch. He was the leader over a region. And he finds out, Pilate finds out that since Jesus is from Galilee and Herod is here, that Herod can take care of it. So Pilate passes the buck and he sends Jesus off to Herod. And Herod had long wanted to meet Jesus because he had heard about the miracles and the things that Jesus had done. And so he wanted Jesus to perform some parlor tricks for him. And when Jesus gets there and doesn't do that, Herod mocks him a little, puts a robe on him, makes fun of him, and then he sends him back to Pilate. And so then Pilate has him again. His plan didn't work. So now Pilate, this Roman governor, must really be the one to decide Jesus' fate. So he begins to go in and examine Jesus further. And it says in John chapter 18, verse 33, Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said unto him and said, Art thou the king of the Jews? Now read Jesus' answer. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight, that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. So Pilate is asking this question because Pilate's concern is from Rome's perspective. If there is somebody proclaiming himself king of the Jews who is planning to rebel against Rome, then Pilate certainly wants to know that. And Pilate will put him to death if he is going to take civil matters into his own hands and try to overthrow Rome. And so Pilate is examining him for Rome's interest, not for the Jews' interest. So Jesus says, yes, but it's not what you think. My kingdom is not of this world. It's a different kind of kingdom. He said, if it were of this world, my servants would be fighting right now. But they're not, because that's not what it's about. Pilate therefore said unto him, art thou a king then? And Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. Again, that's King James for affirming. Yes, you are rightly saying that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? And then Pilate is going to approach the crowds and the Jews, and he's going to give them his decision. Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people, said unto them, Ye have brought this man unto me as one that perverteth the people. And behold, I, having examined him before you, have found no fault in this man, touching those things whereof ye accuse him. No, no, nor yet Herod, for I sent you to him, and lo, nothing worthy of death is done unto him. I will therefore chastise him and release him. Pilate says, all this stuff about He's going he's gonna to be this, this leader and he's going to try to overthrow Rome and he's going to disrupt the, the, civil, the civil life as we know it. None of that's true. He said, I examined him. I don't find any of that to be the case. So I'm going to beat him a little to make you guys happy and I'm going to let him go because he's not a rebel who's trying to overthrow Rome. But listen to what they say. And they cried out all at once saying, Away with this man and release unto us Barabbas who for a certain sedition made in the city and for murder was cast into prison. Pilate, therefore, willing to release Jesus, spake again to them, but they cried, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate says, I'm going to beat him, I'm going to let him go. And they say, We want him dead. Release Barabbas to us. Now the custom was that one prisoner on that day would be released. Barabbas was a murderer. And they said, We want the murderer Barabbas released, not Jesus. And Pilate again tried to reason with them. You really feel a little bit for Pilate in this situation because he knows. He knows that Jesus isn't what they've accused him of. And again, he tries to dissuade them. But they say, crucify him. Crucify him. 
And he said unto them the third time, Why? What evil hath he done? I have found no cause of death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. And they were instant with loud voices requiring that he might be crucified. And the voices of them and of the chief priests prevailed. A third time Pilate goes to them. And he says, what has he done? He has done nothing wrong. I'm going to beat him and I'm going to let him go. But they, they were adamant in their desire for his death. So much so that Pilate, in an effort to quell the crowd and appease this now mob that was calling for Jesus' death, he finally gives in. Matthew 27, 26 says, Then he released Barabbas unto them, and when he had scourged to Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Just before this, Pilate comes out before all of the people, and he brings a basin of water. And before all of them, he washes his hands, and he says, My hands are innocent of the blood of this just person. Pilate knew the type of person Jesus was. Pilate knew Jesus had no business being crucified. And so in an effort, I suppose, to cleanse his own conscience, I don't know if that really worked or not. But he washes his hands and he says, I'm innocent of this. You know what the Jews' response to that was? His blood be upon us and on our children. He said, we will take all of the blame. His blood be on us and on our children. And so he delivered Jesus to be crucified. Jesus was scourged. He was whipped, he was beaten, he was torn apart physically before he ever even got to the crucifixion part. They stripped him, they put on him a scarlet robe. When they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. And after that they had mocked him, they took the robe off of him and put on his... or put put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. Now when they put the crown of thorns on his head, they did not place it lightly upon his head. They put it on there and they pounded those thorns into his skull. And he had blood trailing down his forehead and his cheeks and his head from that crown of thorns. He had blood pouring from the torn flesh, from the scourging and the beating that he had just taken. And to top all of that off, now here they are bowing down to him, putting a robe on him, mocking him and humiliating him. But once again, Jesus takes it and does not respond. And he, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha where they crucified him and two other with him, one on, or on either side one and Jesus in the midst. Now Jesus, in this already physically torn apart state where he is shedding his blood, he is in agony not only emotionally but now physically as well. He has had this cross placed upon his shoulder and he is having to carry that cross the distance from the city to Golgotha where they would crucify him. And along the way, they also take this man named Simon of Cyrene. And they take Simon, and when Jesus is no longer able to bear the weight of that cross, they force Simon to then carry the cross the rest of the way. And when they get to the place where they would crucify Jesus, most likely what would have happened is they would have laid that cross down on the ground, and then they would have placed Jesus on top of that cross. They would have taken the nails and that hammer, and then they would have nailed his hands and his feet as he laid there on the ground on top of that cross. They would have had holes dug in the ground. 
And as they put Jesus and those two criminals on either side of him on those crosses, then they would have lifted those crosses up and allowed that cross to enter that hole and drop. And that in and of itself, amidst all the other agony and pain that Jesus is feeling, I can only imagine him being on that cross nailed and feeling that drop and that rip as he lands in the place where they would mock him as he dies. Luke 23, 34, Jesus is looking at those soldiers who have nailed those nails in his hands and his feet. He is looking at the Jews who cried, crucify him, crucify him. He is looking at all those who have taken part in this. And he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And not only has he taken all of this emotional and physical turmoil and pain and agony, and he has not responded, he has not once threatened, he has not once said, I'm going to get... I'm going to get my revenge, just wait. Not once has he done that, but now he is looking at these very people that have mistreated him, that have tortured him, that have hurt him, that have betrayed him. And he is praying to God that God would forgive them. And how powerful that is to see the perspective of a Savior, to see the perspective of the true Messiah and the true King that never came to overthrow Rome. He came to become the Lamb of God. He came to become the sacrifice that we needed Because our sins had separated us from God and only that pure and holy Lamb of God dying on that cross as a sacrifice for us could restore that relationship. So there he is with a heart of love and compassion even toward his enemies. What a powerful statement that is. Verse 39 of Luke 23 says, And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing amiss. It is not enough that Jesus has been betrayed and humiliated and tortured by the Jews, by the high priests, by his own disciples, by all of those, by the Roman soldiers and everyone else. But now he's got one of the criminals on the cross next to him who is humiliating him further and making fun of him further and saying, If you're really the Christ, well, save us. Bring us down from this. But the criminal on the other side said, What are you saying? We're here for a reason. We deserve what we're getting. But Jesus doesn't deserve this. And that thief on the cross, he recognized something there about Jesus. Same thing that Pilate recognized. That Jesus was a just man not deserving of what was happening to him. And he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. And so this criminal on the cross that was beside him that looks at him and he defends him. And he says, Lord, please remember me. And Jesus says, Today you'll be in paradise with me. Now, there's some confusion sometimes about this story, and people look at this and they say, well, if Jesus taught about this new kingdom and this new way of being saved that we talked about in our last study, about how that we need to believe and confess and repent and be baptized to have our sins washed away, if Jesus really was instituting that, then how was the thief on the cross going to be in paradise with Jesus that very day when he had not had an opportunity to obey that gospel? And I'll remind you of two simple things. One, that new covenant came into effect at Jesus' death. Colossians chapter 2 tells us that that old law was crucified with Christ. And that at Jesus' death, that old law was taken away and replaced. And that yet had not occurred. But the second thing I'll remind you of is that while Jesus was ministering here on earth multiple times, he forgave people of their sins. That was nothing for him. 
He was God made flesh. And he had the right, the ability, and the power to forgive any one of their sins at any time while he was here on earth. And he did that for the thief next to him that defended him. And then in John chapter 19 and 26, it says, When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. And saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her into his own home. And it amazes me that here at this moment where Jesus is hanging on the cross, he's got the sins of the world literally on his shoulders. He's got the emotional and the physical pain and turmoil and agony he's been feeling. And not only can he have a heart of compassion and pray, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. But when he looks down off the cross and he sees his mother, he sees Mary. Mary, the woman who was chosen by God, who carried the Son of God in her womb for nine months, who delivered that baby, fed that baby, took care of him as he grew up. As Jesus was was in that story at 12, those statements that he made about being about his father's business, the scripture says Mary took those things and she, she kept them and she pondered them in her heart. This was his mom. He looks down at her and he wants to make sure that because he's about to die, that she's taken care of. And so he looks at John. John, who along with the other disciples had forsook him and had fled, but is now at the cross beside Mary. And he looks at John and he says, behold your mother. And that's his way of asking John, treat Mary like your own mother. Take her in. Make sure she's provided for. He looks at his mom and he says, behold your son. And so from that point on, John took Mary into his own home and took care of her and provided for her. And it's amazing to me that the Son of God, while 100% God and worried about the entire world, he was also 100% human and he was worried about his mom. And he took care of her. Verse 45 of Matthew 27 says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That darkness that existed from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, that was 12 p.m. to 3 p.m. In the afternoon when the sun should have been shining, there was darkness. That darkness is backed up by sources other than the scripture. That darkness was real. That darkness occurred because the son of God was dying on that cross and giving himself for mankind. And at the end of that period, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now there's two reasons I think that Jesus cried this out. One was he is 100% human. And I think he was feeling the weight of what was happening. He was feeling the agony once again the tremendous burden of carrying the sins of the world. And with sin, there is a separation from God that occurs. And so Jesus in this moment was separated from God in that sense. There's another reason that I think Jesus cried this statement out. In Psalm 22 and verse 1, the psalmist records this prophecy of what that Savior and that Messiah would go through on that day. And the very first verse of this psalm starts with, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then the continuation of Psalm 22 describes in great detail the physical toll and torture that that Messiah would go through. And so those Jews 
on that day who were there witnessing their work of Jesus dying on that cross would hear him cry out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And you know where their minds would go? To Psalm 22. To the prophecy about the Savior. And in their mind, they would have to begin connecting the dots and saying, what if we were wrong? Because he's saying the very thing that the psalmist said the Savior would. In John 19, 28, it says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it on hyssop and put it in his mouth, or to his mouth. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head, and he gave up the ghost. Those three words, it is finished, symbolize everything that Jesus had spent those 33 years of his life doing. It symbolized everything that he was sent here for. In those three words, he is letting the world then know and the world now and everybody who's been able to read Scripture since, letting them know that what his mission was, was now accomplished. He has become that lamb. He has become that sacrifice. His death has now become our way to restore our relationship with God. He says it's done. And he died. Behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And the earth did quake and the rocks rent. And the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Something spectacular happened in that moment that Jesus drew his last breath and gave up the ghost. You see, there had already been darkness when there should not have been darkness for three hours. But now as Jesus dies, the veil of the temple is split from top to bottom. Now what is the veil of the temple. There in Jerusalem, in that temple that Solomon had built, there was a place where only God dwelt called the Holy of Holies. And only once a year could a human being enter that place, and it was the high priest. And once a year he entered the place where God dwelt behind that veil to atone for the sins of Israel for that year. But any other time, no one was allowed past that veil, for that was God's dwelling place. But now in a symbolism that that old law is done away with. That that separation is now done away with. And that now there has been a bridge created to bridge that gap between us and God. There is now a restoration of relationship between mankind and God. There is now the ability for every man and every woman of sound mind to choose to come to God through Jesus Christ. That veil that separated man from God split. And this was not a sheet. This was what estimates would say probably about 60 feet tall and probably about four inches thick. And that very thick, very long veil tore from the top to the bottom in spectacular fashion. It, not, it could not have been an accident. It was not something they would have looked at and said, oh, well, that's happened two or three times. Let's just get a new one. This was a spectacular event and something that they would have had to look at and say, what does this mean? And not only that, but there was an earthquake. The whole earth began to shake. Rocks began to tear apart. Boulders began to crack. The earth was reacting to what had just taken place. That Jesus, the creator of everything, the creator of us, the creator of the earth itself, had just allowed himself to die on that cross for mankind. And all of this was so spectacular 
There were graves that were opened. There were dead people that were now alive that were going into the city and they were witnessing to other people. All of this stuff was taking place and it was such a spectacular sight to behold that Matthew 27, 54 says, Now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. And if a Roman centurion and Roman soldiers that had willingly taken part in crucifying this man, in nailing his hands and his feet to a cross, in watching him bleed out and die, if those Roman soldiers could have seen what happened on that day and say, surely, truly, he is the Son of God. Then what must those Jewish leaders and high priests have thought? What must his disciples who forsook him and fled be thinking? What must all of those who witnessed this event be thinking? The same thing the centurion was thinking. This is the Son of God. And this morning, I want to ask you, what are you thinking? When it comes to Jesus, when it comes to what He's done, what are you thinking? Do you recognize and know that Jesus really was the Son of God? Was He just some great guy who was crucified? Did He just want to be martyred for some cause? No. He let himself be crucified for the greatest cause so that he, be, he could become the Lamb of God that he was prophesied to be and you could have your sins washed away. You and I have sin. We all do. We've all made mistakes in our life. Jesus is the only one that never did. The reason that you can't have a relationship with God without Jesus is because sin has separated you from God. It's the same reason I can't have a relationship with God without Jesus because my sin has separated me from Him. The reason Jesus came and He served and He ministered and ultimately He died was because He wanted to save you and He wanted to save me. The reason that He didn't cry out and threaten and, and revile them and say, I'll get mine, just wait, is because He knew He needed to stay sinless and pure so that He could take your sin and mine on Him. Have you had your sins washed away today? Have you been saved by this Savior who came and suffered all of this for you? If you haven't today, I implore you and I beg you to make that decision. Jesus has outlined the way. We talked about it last time. Jesus said in John chapter 8 and verse 24, uh, I said therefore unto you, you shall die in your sins. If you believe not that I am he, you shall die in your sins. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Jesus said in Luke 13 and verse 3, I tell you, nay, but except you repent, you'll all likewise perish. Have you decided to change, to serve Him and to stop serving yourself? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, 32 and 33, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess before my Father which is in heaven. Have you confessed Jesus? Are you willing to confess Him? Are you willing to confess like the centurion did that truly He is the Son of God? Are you willing to be baptized into him? Jesus said that those that believe and are baptized will be saved in Mark chapter 16. Have you been baptized into him tonight, or this morning? Have you been baptized and had your sins washed away? If you haven't, come to the Savior today. He died for you, and now he wants you to live for him.